The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. A feast for failures, right? Over the past four weeks, we've been working through chapter six. And, and really, if, if you've been paying attention, we've been working on the sermon on the plane, as it was titled, right? And, and it's really... Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's preaching the, the word of God to his disciples. And he's, he's explaining to them the kind of community that he is going to die in order to create. Right? That's where we spent the last four weeks. Right? What does this community look like? It, what's it look like to be love in action? And that's really where he spent most of his time in that. So last week we, we talked about what does it mean? And, and it's coming to Christ. Right? It's hearing the words of Christ, and not just hearing them like listening, but actually hearing them, hearing them with the ears of your heart, right? The who you are. Then it's seeking by God's grace to obey those words and those commands, and that he would say that that's a firm foundation, right? That life that's built on his word, that's built on faith, is a firm foundation. Now we're going to enter into chapter 7, and what you're going to see is basically that sermon fleshed out. Okay, I got it. I'm listening, but I don't got it. How do we do that? And he's, he's basically going to say, follow me and, and, and let's go. Let's, let's live this word out. And that's what they're going to do all the way up into the cross. That Jesus is showing them this sermon in action. So here we are. We're chapter 7. A little overview of chapter 7. We're going to be here for the next, this week and then the next three weeks, right? Um, the whole section should be taken as a whole, quite honestly. So my encouragement to you is read chapter 7 over the next three weeks and keep reading it. And, and try, to, try to really trace the thread that connects all the pieces together. And, and the thread I think you'll see is, is the word faith. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, what you're going to do, you're going to see today, we see a centurion longing for his servant to be healed. Next week, we're going to look at a widow who only has one son, and he died, which is really, I mean, you've got nothing, and now you're decimated, right? After that, we're going to see John the Baptist, or the baptizer, who's in prison, and he's wrestling with doubt, which is amazing when you think about John, and when you think about his life, and he's wondering, do we have the right one, or should we be looking for another one? And then we're going to see at the end of chapter 7... The Pharisees call together a dinner, and they invite Jesus into this dinner. And then they have a, a, a guest that was not on the list. Uh, let's call her a woman of the night. We'll get to look at her a little bit more towards the end. And, and so here's this woman, and she's captivated by Christ to the point that she's laying her life down in, as a living sacrifice. She's being transformed by, by who Christ is. And in all of that, this thread of faith is connected to the fact that Jesus is helping very unlikely friends. <laughs> very unlikely friends. These are not people you would expect to see gathering around the Messiah, and yet Christ graciously, compassionately serves them. Okay? So th th that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of the structure of seven. Now we're just going to look at ten verses today. But I think when we get to the end, this is why I was so thankful that Hannah had the song Jesus, right? No more words are needed in the title of the song. It's called Jesus, right? Right? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah I, th I thought so. Exclamation point, right? And by the way, Max was the one who I thought responded outwardly the best. He was like, yes. He was very excited. Uh, Max is a little guy who just got taken out, but he was pumped, right? And um, now I don't know if he knew why he was pumped, maybe. Uh, but but here, here's the thing. At the end of Luke 7, listen to what it says in verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who is this man? And then they say, Who even forgives sins? So really, chapter 7 is much and all, just like the Bible, who is Christ? Everything points to him. Every, it's, it's all about him, right? And then... We're going to get some other blanks filled in. So let's look at Luke 7, 1 through 10 once again. I'm going to read it in whole, and then we're just going to work our way through it. Follow along, please. Luke 7, 1 through 10. After he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. 
Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, under my house, the centurion said. Therefore, I I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That's our text for this morning. First point on your map that you'll see is Jesus is the Lord amazed by faith. Jesus is the Lord amazed by faith. Jesus, we know from the Bible, is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, right? But he's marveling at this man's faith. He's amazed by it, right? Who who was this man, right, that he's amazed by? Rabbi? No. You might expect that, right? I think if you're just thinking about the normal narrative, the way it would go, you'd expect that. A disciple, someone who has walked away from their their fishing industry, their nets, their family, and has fallen. No. That's pretty amazing, right? Instead... It's a Roman centurion. It's a soldier, right? A Roman centurion was a commander of about 100 people. That's what it would look like in that time, right? This would have to be one of the most unlikely people to find amazing faith in, I would think, right? Yet Jesus is amazed by him. And don't don't forget, like, Jesus is a Jewish man. He's amazed at a bacon-wrapped, scallop-eaten Gentile. Who, who's with Rome, the great oppressor of God's people in this moment. And he's amazed. He's a soldier. He's, he's working for evil Rome. He's stationed in Israel to subject the, 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 the Jews to the emperor's rule. Not most likely to be loved. Not most likely to be filled with faith. He's a man of war. But here we see he's a, he's a man of faith. Hmm. He's no ordinary centurion, though, in a sense, right? By the way, spoiler, the the point is not about this man, even though much of the text is given to this man, right? So he's no ordinary centurion. Why? Because he seems to have a very good reputation, right? We see it there. The Jewish leaders describe him as a man who loves the nation of Israel. That's curious, right? So much that it said he built their synagogue. I don't think he actually was out there with a hammer and nails. He, He probably funded it. He probably funded it. He helped to establish that synagogue, a place of worship for the Jews in that community. But even that's pretty amazing. He's a God-fearer. We don't know that it's the God of Israel, but there's something that's captivating this man at that time. And, And so just a quick side note, as Christians, we believe in what's called common grace common grace, right? And, and I think this man's a picture of that. What I mean by common grace is, have you ever met someone just seems to be filled with mercy, filled with grace, filled with love, doesn't know the love of Christ, doesn't believe in the love of Christ, and yet you're amazed because they're a mercy-filled person. Okay, that's common grace, right? A, a specified grace or a special grace is those who have, man, God has revealed the beauty, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and you believe. You have faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Not everybody has that. But there is a common grace over the world because you could not imagine this world if we were left to our own devices. If you ever want to think about it, and you don't want to think long because it will terrify you, just look at the L.A. riots. Right? That's an old thing. Well, we've got a lot of other riots going on right now. When man 
When I say man, I mean man, woman, child. When they think law has been removed and that there's no repercussions for their action, we are not basically good. We are evil, right? And yet, God knows that in his wisdom and in his kindness, the world could never survive with that. So in his kindness, he puts a blanket of, of grace on people who don't recognize him, who don't love him, who want nothing to do with him. They still get to enjoy ice cream. They still get to enjoy sunshine. They still get to enjoy the warm embrace of someone who loves them, someone who sees them. And, and so that's, that's just general grace. This man seems to be a picture of that. Even so, this is not exactly the resume that you would expect of someone who's becoming one of the great heroes of faith. <laughs> There's only one other place that it says Jesus was amazed, marveled. And you know what it was? At Israel's unbelief. So you got a great contrast. That's the only other time we see it. Jesus is amazed at this man's faith, and later on Jesus will be amazed at Israel's unbelief. And, and now you've pitted the two, and you have a contrast. Question is, what is faith, right? I titled the sermon, You Gotta Have Faith. Don't listen to Limp Biscuit, but that's where it comes from in my head. As soon as I hear that, I start to think that, I start to sing that. Then I'm like, oh, Lord, transform my mind. But what is faith? In our culture, it's, it's very abstract. It can be almost anything you want it to be. Uh, this doesn't answer it in whole, but I think a great place to look, obviously, is the Bible and Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. You can just listen as I read it. It says, now faith is. All right, this is going to be helpful, right? Here's a definition of faith, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Pause. Hope in our culture most often means, man, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I really want to go to Kennywood. That's not what it means in Bible language. Hope is trusted in, right? So, so think about it that way. Now, faith is the assurance of things I have trusted in, right? And then it says, the conviction of things not seen. I'm convinced. I've not seen God. I'm convinced God exists, right? I, I I was just talking to a friend this morning, right? How do we know Adam and Eve existed and what, what language did they speak? I, I don't know, and I can't prove it, but I believe it, even though, because it's the only other thing that makes sense with the reality that I see. But I believe it because God's given me grace to believe that. And I see it in his word, and I'm convinced of it, right? And he says, in verse 6, it says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him, to please God, Right? So you ever wonder, how do you please God? You please God with faith. For whoever would draw near to God, listen, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if we just put that together, faith is believing slash trusting that God is and that he's good. That's at least the baseline, the foundation of faith, okay? Uh, you could put more on that. It's, it's, in a sense, it's, it's a humble confidence that, this is more specific, that Jesus is powerful enough to do whatever he desires, and because he's good, he will do whatever he promises, right? He doesn't lie, right? So I, that's, that's faith. Now, we're not told how this centurion heard of Jesus, or even what he even understands about Jesus's identity, right? We, we don't know that he believes he's Messiah, but he simply, he needs help. His servant needs help. This centurion would be a great problem solver probably to have in your life. He, he's a leader, but he's got to a point where I, I can't fix this, but I've heard of this man who can, and I believe he can help me. I believe he has authority. I believe he has power. I've heard these stories. Go find him and bring him here, right? That's what he said to do. And so they go. And we have to wonder what happened to this man? What happened to the centurion to bring him to this point in life? We have no clue. We don't know because the scriptures doesn't tell us, right? And yet this man is a vivid picture of what the Bible would say, how man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This story is setting up a contrast. And that's really what I want us to see here. And, and I'm titling it as artificial religious type faith, right? That's um, a faith that approaches God on basis of merit, the things that I do, the quality of being particularly good or worthy, especially deserving praise or reward, versus an authentic, and I'm, I'm titling, I don't even know if I like this, authentic, let's call it gospel faith. One is based on grace, 
right? Based on Christ's work, based on his life, on who he is, which approaches, it approaches God on the basis of, of mercy. I don't, I don't deserve this. I need you. Help me. And I think that's the contrast. So let's look. So the second point is artificial religious faith proudly approaches Jesus on the basis of merit. There are times when artificial will do, right? I think we can all agree with that. As a matter of fact, just this week I had, I had read a little article. I wasn't looking for it. It just popped up on my phone. Chad Johnson, Johnson Ocho Cinco, wide receiver, Bengals. Remember this guy? He's a little loose cannon, right? Despite his appearances of always having the bling and the beamers, he actually said it was all fake. He, he admitted to wearing fake jewelry all throughout his NFL career, which I thought, that's interesting, right? He said, I never bought real anything when I was playing, never, right? So artificial work for him. He was fine with that. He was content with that. But I think, you know, we can agree that there, there's a big deal between artificial and authentic especially when it comes to certain things. Now, like, like money. You want real money. You don't want fake money, right? Yeah, it, it does no good for you to have stacks of Monopoly money. Now, you might feel good about it, but if you go to the store and you try to pay up, they're going to look at you a little strange. Animal cookies, right? Come on now, seriously. Somebody has to give me an amen on this. There are the real ones with pink icing, Right? They're so good. I mean, what a guilty little pleasure. I, and then there's these garbage ones that are just like a little cracker. No icing. No artificial anything. No flavor. They're just garbage. If you like them, great. Don't ever give me those. Fate, artificial won't do there. I don't want that. Get away. You got a bag of the pink ones? I'll eat them all. Get, give me a glass of milk. Let's get to town, right? Like, let's do this. How about when it comes to faith? How much more serious is it that you have genuine, authentic, saving faith? Oh, way more important than a cookie, right? And this is really what Jesus is getting at. Look at verses 4 and 5. Once again, it says, And when they, meaning the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for him, Jesus right? He loves our nation. He's the one who built our synagogue, right? I mean, the Jewish elders are appealing to Jesus based on this man's religious record. He's a good guy. Do this for him. You owe him. I mean, essentially, that's what they're saying. Many people in our culture, maybe even in here this morning, wrongly assume that God owes them a life of health, right? Happiness based on what? The quality of their living, Oh, man, well-meaning Christians believe this. I hear it all the time when suffering hits in a moment where we're, we're, we're trying to figure out what's going on with life. Why? They won't come out and say it because they know it sounds a little bit shifty, but why is this happening to me? I've always done the right things. I've always followed Jesus. I don't remember a time I didn't. And what they're saying is, God owes me. I'm, I'm worthy of him doing this for me. But, but that's not at all how the, the Bible presents God and grace and faith, right? It's kind of a Christian karma. It's not biblical, right? This kind of false teaching, by the way, is, is believed by many people, and it results in Christian faith becomes a mechanism or a means to basically get my felt needs met, Instead of actually meeting God and being transformed into his image to be more like him, right? What do we do with a belief that God owes us protection, that, that God, he owes us provision in a worldly sense? What do you do with that? Here's what I tell you. You turn from it and you run far as you can in the other direction. There's so much teaching that, that goes along this way. It's just not lined up with the truth of God's word right? The reason you run from it is because you and I cannot put God in our debt. And that's what you're trying to do when you do that. You ready? God actually, he owes you nothing. And even that's wrong. Because actually, God does owe us something. He owes us wrath. 
He owes us wrath because of his holiness, because of his justice, because of his perfection. You and I deserve God's wrath. The wages of sin, right, is death. And death is way more than, than a dirt nap. It's, it's separation from God who is good in, in a real place called hell where his wrath is, is poured out for eternity and it never ends. Okay? That's what we deserve. So, so you never want to go on the basis of, God, you owe me. I deserve this. Uh, you do deserve, but it's not what you think you deserve. And that was mind-blowing to me when I was starting to, to trust and to believe in Jesus because I'd never heard that before. Right? I thought good people get good things, bad people get bad things. And I was, of course, a good guy because I was always measuring between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. And I'm somewhere in the middle. But I think I'm closer to Mother Teresa because I've never killed six million Jews. Christians do this all the time. It's not a Bible thought. It's not a Bible thought at all. There's no good news in that, by the way. It's a form of prosperity gospel, actually. Martin Luther would say that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And it surely is religion. What do I mean by that? We talk about this often, but I can't get away from it because Luke keeps bringing us to it right? Religion says, I trust, I obey God in order to get things from God. That's religion. I, listen, once again, I trust, I obey God in order to get things from God. That is religion, right? Um, to show you how ugly this gets, I, I have a very dear friend of mine who she was struggling with arthritis and some different things like that. Her body was deteriorating. She was going to go meet Jesus, and she was a lover of Jesus. She loved the Lord, and she was all hunched over. I mean, I mean it was like the grave was just swallowing her up. She was like shrinking down, hunchback, struggling. We get her a walker because she didn't have one. Her husband, who believed this kind of thinking, told us to get the walker out of the house because she was going to be a woman who believed God to give her the next step. She was going to have faith. And I thought, oh, it's so gross. See, see, bad teaching hurts people. It's not just a list of ideas. It's, it really hurts real people that God loves, right? And, and who's that? He loves everybody. And this kind of teaching is very pervasive. It doesn't always go to that end. But he would not let her use that walker because he thought that went against trusting in God to give her the next step. By the way, the end of that story is she died. She's now with the Lord. The husband eventually repented because he really did believe that God would heal her. When he chose to heal her in a different way by calling her home, he realized, I've built my faith on a bad foundation. He repented. He's been repenting ever since. And I would say he's now got a pretty sturdy foundation and he'll go be with the Lord and he'll see his wife again, I believe. So, end of that story. So these things really matter. But gospel faith, and if that's what I'm calling it right, is I trust and I obey God because I, I see him, I delight in him. How could I not? I enjoy him and I want to be like him. I, I don't obey and trust God to get things from God. I do that to get God. So, so there is a, there's a treasure transfer that happens in real authentic faith. See, in one sense, the elders had it right. The Roman centurion, he was surely, it says, a lover of Israel, a friend of his people. However, their conclusion that he was somehow worthy to have Jesus come and do this thing for them, that was their own reality. It actually wasn't his. It wasn't his conclusion, right? Look once again at six, verse, verses 6 through 8. When Jesus went with, went with them, right? When he was not far from the house, the centurion, and you have to wonder, what happened between now and then? I have no clue. Centurion sent his friends saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. He said, why? Well, because I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. He, he gets it. He's getting it. I'm not worthy. I don't, you don't owe me anything. I can't put you in my debt. I need help from you, but I'm not worthy of that. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. Boy, there's, there's the faith. He, he sees it. And let my servant be healed. 
right? He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. I don't, I don't think he really understands who Jesus is here, by the way. I bet you he probably came to faith eventually, but he's, he's saying, you're a prophet or some man of God. You're, you have a connection to the divine, right? And you're under that authority. And if you say it, it'll probably happen. He may believe, I don't know, but he doesn't have all the pictures, so we just don't know that. But as a man with authority in the realm of military, he absolutely understands the sense of what it means for Jesus to have authority in the spiritual realm. He knows you can do that. I've heard of you, right? Just as the centurion has soldiers ready to obey his beck and call, right? In the same way, he trusts that Jesus has authority to accomplish whatever he desires as well. Because I've heard the stories, which once again, in the Gospel of Luke, we continue to see this over and over, that the outsiders, those who, who don't know all the tenets of religious faith, they're most likely to come to Christ. We see it again and again and again. All too often, by the way, within our own life, crisis is what brings us to the throne room of grace and says, help me. I need you. I've, I, I can't manage this anymore, right? I, I just met with a young man like that yesterday, and he's trying to figure these things out, and it's been crisis after crisis in his life that's brought him to this, this moment of asking big existential questions, and he's trying to figure it out. Well, let's, let's talk about the real, though, which is the last point, by the way. Authentic gospel faith approaches Jesus because he's, he's approached us in a sense. No one searches for God. It's, if you've ever come to, to God, it's because he's, he's working in your heart. He's working in your life to bring you to a point of coming to him. But it's always on the basis of mercy. That's how you know it's real, right? This Gentile sinner understood that he was unworthy to meet Jesus. However, his hope his hope is not based on his worthiness or his goodness. It's based on the mercy and the power of Christ, right? Not on his goodness, not on his power. He knows he doesn't have the power or he would have already done it, right? He knows himself to be unworthy, but he knows he doesn't need to be worthy to come to Christ because he's asking for mercy. Oh man, how we have to get this to be a gospel people that's going to have truly any effect within this city. The, the whole Christian life is one of, of mercy and grace. All, all of it. Sometimes I think we start there and then we, we graduate. And now we do all these amazing things. All those amazing things are based on the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God, right? He recognizes his desperate need for help and he also recognizes his complete helplessness to do anything. So this man shows faith through his words, through his words. He trusts that Jesus can heal up close, but he also knows you don't even have to be here. You could be in another zip code. Just say the word. I believe you can do this. I, I know you can do this, right? And, and so what happens? Look at verse 9 through 10. This is how we finish it out. But then we got a lot more to still unpack. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He was amazed by this faith. He was amazed at this trust. And turning to the crowd, imagine, they're all falling. What's Jesus going to do? He said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. By the way, who's the majority of the people following Jesus in that moment? Israel. He's looking at Peter. I know you think you've done some amazing things. Okay, you left some fishing stuff. Cool. I'm just, I'm just letting you guys know, in all of Israel to the crowd, you folks and others, I've not seen such faith. <laughs> they had to be like, hmm, really? I mean, we left everything. This guy, really? Man, I, I wonder what they felt. I don't know. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found, listen, the servant well. All right. Jesus marveled at him. Those words, by the way, have captured me this week. Jesus has marveled. He was amazed at this man's faith. That just stands out. Don't, don't miss the point, though. There's a lot of points, but here is the point. Jesus responds graciously 
towards unworthy, sinful humans based on their faith or their trust in him and their recognition of their own unworthiness, right? That, that really is the main thrust of it. See, receiving grace, receiving mercy from Jesus does not, you ready, depend on your social status. Boy, that's good news. <laughs> that's good news, right? It doesn't, it doesn't rest upon your rank, your race, your religious affiliations, your good works, or anything like that at all, which is the point of grace. You, you don't deserve it. As soon as you deserve it, it's no longer grace. It's no longer a gift. It's, it's payment. That's not the Christian faith. We don't deserve any of it, but God, in his kindness, in his love, in his mercy, he loves to lavish goodness and grace and mercy and forgiveness upon very unworthy people. Why? Because we're all that in a bag of chips. No, because he's good. And good seems such like a, a lame word to describe him. He's, he's so far beyond good. He's stunningly beautiful. And he radiates love. It's, it's who he is. In so many ways. And he's so much more. This is why we come to the word of God. To get our hearts and our minds centered upon who he is. Who he says he is. Because he's, he's way greater than what the world thinks of him. When they dumb him down. Jesus is my homeboy. Get to know your God. Right? This passage, by the way, teaches us two very important things. In regards to the Christian faith. One is... Knowing who Christ is is of utmost importance. But knowing who you are is extremely valuable as well. And that's what we see here. The question, do you know who and what you are? It seems like a strange question, but it actually requires more thought than you'll give it today probably. Who, who you are really because the culture will define you in many ways. You know, what you do, this, that. And they'll, that might help explain, right? Anymore, you, you can hear it in a lot of the language within the culture, right? Like, I, I have ADHD. I don't. Some of you think I do. Maybe I've never been diagnosed. <laughs> but they'll label that, and it's not something they have. It's who they are. They'll take the label, and they'll say, that's who I am. It's not who you are. It might explain pieces of you. But it's not who you are. You're an image bearer of God. You're made in his image. You like him, but you're not him. But you're also a fractured image bearer of God. Why? Because of the fall. So, so where God can be perfectly and wholly jealous for his creation, you and I, in our jealousy, almost always are never doing that perfectly. Where God can be perfectly and wholly wrathful and angry, you and I almost always cannot be perfect in our, or righteous in our anger. Although there are times we ought to be angry. I mean, there's just numerous things that have happened within this city in the past couple of weeks that has caused me to be very angry. And if you're not angry at, at some of the things that are happening within the police force and the different things that are happening in the news, you have to ask yourself, is it because you're so detached you don't care about the people it's affected? But what do I do with my anger? Do I curse the police force or do I seek to bless them? That really is the difference. There are times you should be angry, but what do you do with your anger? But I can tell you right now, you can't stay there long. If you stay angry long, it's going to just consume you. It will consume you. Don't let the sun go down on your anger while you give opportunity to Satan, Ephesians tells us. Paul tells us in the letter of Ephesians, turn from that. Forgive. Be like your heavenly father. Give grace. Give mercy. Forgive. Okay, well, so we got to know who God is and who we are. Do you know who you are? Do you know what the Bible says about you in the, the core of who you are. Okay, you're an image bearer, but also the Bible says we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, the good things we do, apart from grace of God, are like a polluted garment. Because it's family Sunday, we'll just leave it at that. It's way worse than you think of like a dirty little rag that you check the oil on. 
It's way worse than that. Do you know who Christ is? Holy. He's, he's limitless. He's creator. He's sustainer. Just listen to what the, the book of Colossians says about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I don't have time to unpack all these things, but, but you can just hear the living word of God and, and capture what you can. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Just a handful of things we see there. Christ is God. He's fully God. He's fully man, right? Christ is before all things. There was never a time there was not Christ. He, he doesn't have a born-on date. If you, I, that was news to me when I was coming to faith in Christ. I always thought, well, it was, we had a birthday, December 25th. We all do things on it. That's his humanity. But he's always existed in his divine nature. Christ created everything that is not God. He holds all things together, your ligaments, your blood, everything, holds it together with the word of his power. I found a dead squirrel the other day. Weird, I know, to talk about that. But that squirrel can't die apart from God allowing that because he holds all things together. Birds don't fall from the sky without permission. Leaves don't fall from trees without permission. He's all powerful, right? And all things were created for him and through him. Okay. That's his preeminence, okay? But he's so good that he would come and he would reconcile enemies to himself through the giving of his life upon a cross. This is Christ, right? Jesus Christ created everything and sustains everything for his glory. And that's good news, by the way. When, when you see and understand those two stunning realities, by the way, who Jesus is and who we are, you will properly ask in that moment, how can I be put right with him? You might not say it that way, but you will not think you're worthy. If you, have, if you have seen God through the revealing of his word by his spirit, you'll never think he owes me something. You will, you will fall on your face, not literally, although you might, but, but not necessarily. I, I don't like when preachers talk like that because I remember thinking, oh, I didn't fall on my face. Is this real? But you will you will hide in a moment until you understand that he's made every way for you to come near through the gospel. He's so good. How, how, do you, how can you be put right? The answer is faith. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ. See, Jesus willingly died for our sins. He rose again from the grave. And so now we put our trust in him, in his work. He's worthy. I'm not worthy. That's the point of the gospel. When I look at the cross, it's hard to see a man who was beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross to die in the place of a sinner like me and think, there's my worthiness. This is what I'm owed. This is what I deserve. How silly to even begin to think like that. But you can see how you need your thinking. I need my thinking conformed, transformed to the word of God. Because naturally, in and of myself, I will think, yeah, but I'm all right. I, I mean, think, I think he needs to show up for me here. I've done some pretty good things in life, even though I won't verbalize it that way. See, by faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven, can be forgiven, past, present, future, all of them wiped away upon the cross. And we can be assured in that moment that we will live with him forever. Why? Because he triumphantly rose from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he has promised. Okay, I believe that. And many times there's moments where I'm like, oh, help my unbelief. You're going to see that with, with John, the baptizer, the, the Baptist, right? He's doubting in prison in that moment. A great man of faith. Matter of fact, no one's better. But he says even the least of these will be just as, they'll be amazing compared to John. Two weeks, come back. Come back next week too. 
You will be, if your faith is in Christ, you will be raised from the dead and live with God forever. <gasps> Why? Because of what I've done, because of what Christ has done, and I believe that. Faith, trust, alone. Not faith and. No, I believe, I believe that, and I've got to live a good life. No, you live a good life of the overflow of faith. You do not live a good life to be saved. You live a good life because now that you're in Christ, he's in you, his spirit dwells in you, and now he's beginning to work out the fruit of the spirit in your life. And it's a slow process, but that's not what makes you saved. That's the seal that you are. And you, man, I, man, I pray you get this. Putting our faith in Christ is not about trying harder. I think so many times we think that. It's actually transferring our trust away from ourselves in anything that we do, good or bad, and trusting alone in Him. That's faith. So when we see Christ properly, when we see ourselves, the first thing we do is cry out, help me. You might not say those words, but that's what you're saying. I'm not worthy. You're worthy. I need help. You've got to do this. I can't do this, right? Help me because of, of what you've done and who you are, not because of anything I've done or ever will do. Help me. You're asking for mercy. You're asking for grace in that moment. This is such good news. And the worse you've lived, I think the better news it is. And no matter how good you've lived, you've not lived great. Not according to the law. Right? This is why Paul in Romans 10 says... Romans 10, 12, and 13, and I'm going to add 17. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. He's meaning it doesn't matter what, what race you are. It doesn't matter if you're God's chosen people according to the Old Testament, their Bible, right? There's no distinction between the two. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. He's meaning in faith. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved right? He, he, he would go on to say, you, you confess with your mouth and you believe with your heart. That's faith. It's real. And then he finishes off verse 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. This is why preaching and, and teaching and sharing the gospel with people is so vital. You could live the greatest life ever and it doesn't matter for anyone's salvation apart from the good news of Jesus Christ. I know lots of moralistic people who live probably better lives than most people in here. No one's coming to trust in Jesus Christ because of their amazing life, right? We've got to be a people of proclamation, of the word, of sharing. Yes, live a good life so that your lips and your life match. But there's got to come a point where you actually love someone enough to share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. Why? Because you have the answer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except trusting and believing in him. Nobody. So, he, so here's another thing to keep in mind when it comes to faith. And I think this is really important. Otherwise, I'd probably end. It's not the quality of your faith that saves us. Oh, that's another little subtle lie I hear people believe, right? It's, it could be the smallest amount of a mustard seed of faith that just trust in the in the truth of God and who Christ is and what he's done that is sufficient. Sufficient, right? It's easy to assume that we're saved by faith, which means a lot of times we think, well, now God will love us based on the depth of our repentance and faith, based on the quality of our faith. And when I don't wake up and just be full of faith, then he's probably not really pleased with me. No, he, faith, faith. It's the object, right? Listen to what Tim Keller says. I think he's very helpful here. He said, it is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. We all get this, by the way, right? Imagine we're all on a speedboat. Actually, make it bigger. It's a yacht, and it's a great time. And one, two of us, two of us fall off the boat, making this up as we go, right? And two of us fall off the boat, and we're all splashing around, and, and we're like, throw me something, right? And, and, and they're like, anything? Yes, I just, just throw me anything. And someone's like, okay, cool. And they grab a bowling ball, and they throw it at you. And you, you have faith in this thing, and you grab a hold of it. What's going to happen? To the bottom you go, you're going to die, right? So you could, you could 100% believe that bowling ball is going to help you. But you're 100% of faith. It's not going to help you. You're dead. I have faith. They throw you a lifesaver. I believe that can help me, and I latch on to it. I now believe that, 
But, but I could even still be like, but I think the waves are going to keep crashing over me. I think I'm going to go into the propeller and I have all these anxious thoughts, but I'm still holding on to it because I don't really have a better option here. I don't have amazing faith in that lifesaver, but okay, God willing, I'm going to be okay. Why? Because this thing could keep me afloat. Well, you don't like that? How about this one? Um, we're going to go on a trip, Gabe, right? Where do you want to go? Hawaii. Good. Okay. Gabe and I are going to go on Hawaii, and we're going to go on a trip. And, and to get there, Gabe, by the way, you and I need a plane, right? We can't walk there. We can't drive there. We need some help. And, and Gabe is terrified to fly. I don't know if he really is. He might love it. But in this story, he is. He's terrified to fly. And so we get to Pittsburgh, and, and, and we're starting to get into our seats. And he's beginning to have a little bit of a freak-out moment. He's like, you know, I really do want to go to Hawaii. But, you know, Scott, I, I just don't know because, like, <sighs> you can hear him. He's having an anxiety, like, panic attack. He's freaking out. And I'm like, Gabe, it's going to be fine. I mean, seriously, I've flown much of my life. You're going to be fine. And the thing starts to taxi, and the lady starts to come around, or the man starts to come around, and, and they start to ask me what I want to drink. I always get a crayon apple. I love their ice cubes, right? But I bring pistachios because they give you pretzels now. They don't actually give you peanuts. I don't know why, peanut allergy or something, right? I've got a book, and I've got something I'm going to listen to. I love the process of flying. I don't like the process of traveling. Gabe is sweating profusely. He's freaking out. Everyone's looking at him, and he's like having a bad moment. But he really wants to go to Hawaii, okay? Okay, plane takes off. We're in the air. He passes out. He now wakes up, right? We're halfway through the trip. He's starting to look. He looks at the little screen on the back of the thing there, and he sees we're above water. He has another freak out moment, and he passes out. Okay, poor Gabe, right? Everybody say, aw, right? Good, <laughs> such a good people, man. So <laughs> you, you, I love how you just deal with my antics. So bear with me, right? There's a point to this. So we begin to descend and, and Gabe, he's starting to wake up and, and we touch down, right? Now, who had more faith, Gabe or me? Whoever said Gabe's interesting, I would love to talk about that. I kicked Gabe's booty in faith. Like, for real. Like, I crushed him. I'm just eating pistachio. I mean, it's just, I just crushed him, right? Who got there first, Gabe or me? It's a trick question. We got there at the same time, right? Did we both get there safely? Yes. Can you see how it wasn't my amount of resting and relaxing on the flight got us there? It was the plane, it was the crew, and if you want to get real technical, it's ultimately God allowed it to get there, right? I crushed him, but we both made it safely home. I just enjoyed the flight more. That's how faith works. Some of you, I feel for you, I really pray for you a lot, because I know you're just burdened with anxiety. And sometimes you're so burdened with, I don't even know if I love God, and you probably love God more than most, you're just so paranoid and anxious. And I just keep praying that the Lord would just comfort you with his truth and allow you to work through that so that you might be able to enjoy the turbulence a little bit more. But even if you don't, even if you have freak out faith till you die, right? If you just got the smallest amount of trusting in Jesus Christ, it's sufficient. Why? Because he's promised to do it. You can trust him. You can trust him. And there will be a day where you won't have to deal with your, your anxieties, your fears, your paranoia, because your faith will actually become sight. Your faith will become sight. And in that moment, you'll, you'll probably, we'll all probably wonder, like, why did we worry so much? But until then, keep getting to know God. Keep getting to know God, because... As we do, as we get to know Christ through his word, we joyfully give ourselves to Jesus. Why? Because he willingly gave himself for us, for the joy that was set before him. If you can trust Jesus with your salvation, with your soul, with your eternity, surely you can trust him no matter how bad the turbulence gets here. Amen. Surely. And if not, that's where you need to go to work and fight the good fight of faith. Because there's a little bit of unbelief there that needs just worked out. And until you die, until I die, you and I will always be this little admixture of belief and unbelief. It's just how it is. But faith in Christ, life, death, resurrection, I don't even like this language now that I look at it and think about it, is the ticket to, to life with him. It's, it's what gets you on the plane. 
And so let's finish with the Word of God. Revelation 3.20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He says, if anyone hears my voice, remember, faith comes by hearing, and opens the door, right, to believe that's the voice, to believe, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I, I love that picture. Grab a seat at the table. What, what gets me a seat there? Just trust. <laughs> trust he's got a seat for you. Why? Because he said he does. Believe him. Believe him. Well, that's it. We've got three more weeks to look at this chapter. We've got to leave something else to say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the truth that it is nothing in and of ourselves that brings us to you. That, that you, in your kindness, you're the good shepherd. Sheep hear your voice, and they follow you. Lord, even faith is a gift of grace. None of us would trust you. None of us would believe in you. We would all run from you because we have all run from you because every one of us have been at one time in our lives rebellious, not wanting to submit to your good rule, to your good reign, not wanting to believe the truth of who you say you are and even the truth of who you say we are. We didn't want to believe that and yet in your kindness, you have allowed us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and give us this precious gift of believing in you. So, Father, I ask right now that you would just cause the people of For the City Church to have a greater trust in you, a greater faith in you, so that, so that we may be able to enjoy the, the plane ride just a tad bit more, right, to use that metaphor. But even if not, we know that the reason we're going to touch down is because you've promised and you never lie. So we can trust you. So Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would continue to help us to live in such a way in the light of this truth that would continue to magnify the great name of Jesus. We ask in your beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.